Hi, I'm Stathis, your host. Before we jump in this episode, let me introduce DevRelX. DevRelX is a hub for developer marketing and DevRel professionals. Stay home while DevRelX brings you rich content to boost your DevRel game. Access developer population insights, news, job openings, and more. Discover how to empower developers and grow communities at devrelx.com. Hello and welcome to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, a podcast from Slash Data. This is a podcast to come to for best practices and insights on the developer marketing world. In each episode, we meet a different guest, each with a background in technology, who will share their experiences, success stories and lessons learned. We are Slash Data and our mission is to help the world understand developers. Stay tuned for more episodes by signing up at developermarketingpodcast.com. Hello, welcome to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, a podcast from Slash Data. This is the very first episode, and today I'm very lucky to be joined by Mary and Andreas. Um, who are both heavyweights in the world of developer marketing and developer relations. I'm going to get them to introduce themselves. So, Mary, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, um, your career to date, and um, your book. Sure. Thanks for having me today. Um, So my name is Mary Thangval, and I've been working with various developer communities for a little over a decade now. Um, I started at O'Reilly Media and have a lot of experience in the DevOps and web performance spaces there, and then worked with Chef Infrastructure, working with their community team, uh, a company called SparkPost here in San Francisco as well, which is an email API company building out their DevRel team, and have noticed a lot of patterns and trends along the way over the last few years, especially as developer relations has kind of come into its own. And so for the last year and a half now, I have been working, consulting with companies that are trying to figure out what developer relations is and how to build these technical communities. So helping them build a team or work on their strategy or figure out the the business value of what they're doing, building a community with their developers, with their technical audience. And released a book back in October um, called The Business Value of Developer Relations that's split kind of half and half between how to define that business value for your company and how to figure out what that is so that you have the metrics and you have the value that you can go back to back with to the stakeholders um, as well as practical application of now that you have a DevRel team, what do you do? How do you handle it? How do you connect with the community? Some of the best practices and things along the way. Thank you. Yes, I've been looking at your book, and I have to ask, I was going to ask later, I have to ask now, what is it with the avocados? <laughs> <laughs> sure thing. So when I was back at SparkPost, um, about three years ago, uh, we had one of our product managers who had a hard time saying developer advocate when she got to talking quickly. And so it would come out developer avocado every once in a while. And all of us on the team loved avocados and kind of just embraced it. And so it became our internal team name. And then a couple of us were sitting down chatting about it one day and realized that there's an actual analogy around it that might help our coworkers understand the value of developer relations and what they can get out of it. And so the the basic idea, and I have a blog post about this, and I'm actually giving a talk about it this weekend as well, um, that I'll put some information up about, but the basic idea behind it is that 
DevRel can be viewed as a kind of fatty department or an expensive department with sponsorships and swag and community events and all of these things, but used in the right times, in the right ways, in the right combinations, it can be incredibly healthy for both the company and the community and beneficial to the, the longevity of the product. I see, right. And it, yet it's stony at heart. So, you know, robust and able to deal with criticism. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So, yeah, the avocados on the cover of the book are the folks that I did case studies with throughout the book. And I have um, snippets from each of those case studies throughout the book with that particular right. person. I see. Well, the cover is certainly very um, remarkable and memorable. And uh, we'll put a link in the notes to the podcast so that people can go and see that and also read your blog. Co- blog post about what it's uh, more about the analogy so Andreas turning to you now um, so I know a little bit more about this book because I work with you on it Uh, it's got a far more postmodern cover I would say Um, can you tell us a bit about what's inside it and how you came to write it and about yourself please yes so I'll start with myself I used to describe myself as a developer once. I also was a strategist. These days I'm more of an entrepreneur and CEO. So um, the book came out of probably a conference, uh, our Future Developer Summit, which we run for the second time in 2017. And there we had a few folks who were uh, giving talks in what was essentially a relatively small audience. Uh, It was Um, invite only as well we didn't publish any videos so we thought how can we get the word out to more um, a wider audience and uh, I think it was one of the attendees who mentioned it together with uh, Nicolas Sauvage my co-editor for the book and so we said let's um, find a medium through which we can spread the word more widely for um, what speakers in this conference, the Future Developer Summit, talk about. So at the conference, we had um, quite a few, um, uh, let's say, senior practitioners, um, director-level people, VP-level people in you know, your usual suspect companies, uh, uh, the big platforms uh, speaking on whatever they were an expert on, whether it is email marketing or running hackathons or building um, early stage communities and so on. And so we thought, let's um, invite them to write a chapter uh, of the book each, such that we can create a book that essentially is um, best practices from the experts. And that's how the book came about. Uh, It was published at our uh, September 2018 conference. And... Um, we are also working on a version two, I should say, as a, a, a teaser, which will come out in the next few months. And it basically, I think, is the um, as close as, as it gets to a, um, a definitive guide on, on developer marketing uh, by the experts and the practitioners of that field. Okay. Yeah. So we have two very different books about a similar kind of field. So there's a developer marketing book from experts in the developer marketing space. And then Mary, your book with the case studies is something that you authored solely um, with a technical reviewer, uh, John Bacon, very well known in in the field. Um, So looking at the two subjects, DevRel and developer marketing, Mary, how would you define the difference between them? 
Sure. So I think there's actually a lot of overlap. And as I've been reading the developer marketing book, I've seen that, right? There's a lot of times when I'm sitting there nodding going, yep, yep. I say the same thing to people all the time, right? And so I think one of the interesting things with developer relations and one of the things a lot of companies struggle with is where it fits within the company, right? Because there are pieces of marketing in there. There are pieces of product in there. There are pieces of engineering in there. And so figuring out where DevRel fits is difficult. But I think because of that, there's things that we can learn from marketing. There's things we can learn from product. There's things we can learn from engineering. And so the focus on developer marketing is fascinating to me because it's helping marketers who don't have a tech background, who aren't necessarily very tech savvy, understand how to approach a technical audience, which is huge. And that's been a problem for years in tech companies that Developers don't, t- don't trust marketing teams because they don't know how to speak a technical language, right? So I'm excited to see the impact of, of the developer marketing book on the industry as more people start to read it and as more people start to apply the principles in it to see how that changes the, the trust balance between developers and marketing teams. Do you think there's a different um, skill set or demographic required for that kind of work? Or do you think it's something that um, anybody could pick up given that we've now got two books on the subject? Yeah, I think, I think it is something that a lot of people could pick up. Um, I think developer relations, it depends on the role that you're pursuing. So I think someone who is excited about technology and interested in in doing some research and getting to know specific communities can absolutely pick up a, a technical community manager job or um, some of the other related jobs within developer relations. I think developer advocates usually come from a developer background or a, a coding background of some sort, because those are the folks that are really digging deep into the code with the community members. And while a technical community manager is absolutely expected to carry on a conversation, a technical conversation, but it's, it's more of a high level rather than I'm going to pull out my laptop and open up my terminal and code in the API right alongside the community member, right? So I think there's a slight difference there of, of when someone can just step into a role versus having specific things in their background that qualify them for it. Um, but I think anyone who, who is interested in meeting the needs of a developer audience and is willing to invest the amount of time that it takes to kind of learn the technical aspects of that can absolutely step into some of those roles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Andreas, I'll bring you in here because you, you have your own views, I'm sure on um, the differences and the overlaps. What, what would you say um, is the biggest field where there's an overlap? Um, So first let me talk about uh, marketing versus relations because um, I've been grappling with that uh, distinction for a while, and I think we've talked, Joe, about doing a, a blog post on this. Um, to me, it maps roughly as marketing versus client relations would map in any other field. Um, in other words, marketing versus sales. Uh, sales has a bad rep, uh, so it, it does have a bad rep in developer circles as well. And I think. The closest analogy to it would be marketing and client relations. So marketing is about, in my mind, um, defining target audience, uh, defining market plans, defining engagement channels, defining um, 
how are you going to reach uh, those developers, uh, the product marketing side, marketing communications, and so on. And relations is about um, all the, uh, the, the, the field work. In other words, working with developers uh, to help them understand how to, to use your tools to build better apps. That's one side that's going from kind of the developer to the company, or sorry, going from the company to the developer. And then there's the opposite side, which uh, in, in some companies and circles is called specifically developer advocates, because it's about going from the developer to the product manager within the company and saying, I'm getting very strong feedback from people who use these tools that you should actually include feature X or remove feature Y. And it's very often the case that the product managers will not get to listen to that feedback, A, because they don't have the, the means, or B, because they are uh, biased towards, let's say, big customer feedback, and they won't hear the, the guys in the, in the long tail or maybe the niche use cases. So there's a very important role, which is advocating on behalf of the developer to the product managers, what are the next features, next capabilities that the product should include. I can see Mary's nodding along to that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's, so there's a, a mantra that I tell people often that to the company, I represent the community, to the community, I represent the company, and you have both of those interests in mind at all times, right? And so that's, it's a balancing act at times because you're constantly going back to the company with feedback from the community. You're constantly turning around and, and explaining to the community why the product roadmap looks the way that it does and why those are the decisions that you've made. And there's also some industry thought leader-y type pieces in there as well as you're explaining, here's why we've made these decisions. Here's the best practices that we're following. Here's the reason why this fits well within the current landscape of the tech industry, right? And so it's kind of a mixture of all of those things. There's a lot of um, storytelling in there, not from a like uh, telling white lie storytelling, but, but making what you're doing fit the perspective of the person that you're talking to. So taking the feedback from the developer audience or the technical audience and communicating that in a way that the product team and the stakeholders internally in the company are going to understand and vice versa, taking the business speak from your product team, from the stakeholders, and communicating that back out into the community in a way that they understand. And because you're that bridge, you're building trust on both sides. And so the biggest thing that I think developer relations teams are responsible for is making those connections, both community member to community member and community member to coworkers, and making sure that those connections are strong and then stepping back and letting the other people do their jobs, right? So it's, it's almost... I've been calling it DevRel qualified leads along the lines of marketing qualified leads because it's a business phrase that people understand. But, you know, I'll, I'll make an intro of a community member to the recruiter. And it's not my responsibility whether or not that person gets hired, but I've made that connection. So I can, I can claim that connecting piece, right? Or I'll connect a community member to someone on the marketing team, if it's a community member that's active in one of our forums and is posting some longer posts than there, and they might be great to write a blog post, but it's not my responsibility if that blog post actually gets published on the site, right? There might be, it might be a three month long wait for content or the community member might not have time to do that, but I've made that connection 
and it's a qualified connection that that could bring value to the company. And so focusing on how many of those connections can we make? How many of those connections am I responsible for versus what's the actual work output so that we aren't getting saddled with sales numbers or marketing numbers or traditional business metrics that don't really fit within the developer relations structure. I see. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing a fantastic job there and you clearly love it. Um, we came up in our book with some experts that we thought represented the best of developer marketing um, companies or individuals that you think are doing a brilliant job in the field. So that, for example, if you were building a new team, um, the stars, the key players that you'd want to put on that on that team. It's a hard question because there's so many good people in the field right now. Um, it's been really exciting to see as the industry has grown and people have become more passionate about it and more understanding of the value that we bring to the table to see, you know, the people, people who are really leading the industry and doing really, really awesome things in the industry and pushing the industry forward. Um, I don't know. Narrowing down that list is, is difficult. <laughs> yeah. And naming names, of course, because somebody always gets forgotten. Exactly. What do, guys have in, what do these guys and girls have in common that um, you would say that really you know, makes them shine? Sure. I think the biggest thing is they're passionate about their community. Um, so they're wanting to enable the developers that they're working with, enable the communities that they're working with to do their best possible work. And that that comes up in different ways, right? So it might be uh, best practices for APIs or uh, best practices for incident response or any variety of things, but they're very passionate about how do I, how do I make this the best possible experience for them so that their job is easier, so that their life is easier, so they have a better work-life balance, any of those types of things. And that passion then leads them to give talks about best practices or um, connect more people because they're, they're interested in deepening those relationships within the community. Um, and so it leads to all of these, you know, someone will go down a rabbit hole and research a topic because one of the community members is really passionate about it. And now I want to understand how that fits into the overall structure of everything else that we're doing. Right. But that, that passion for their community really drives them. And you can see it in, in the technical work that they're doing as well as the community work that they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to move to Andreas now and ask a bit about um, the book. I think we published Developer Marketing, The Essential Guide in September last year. So technically we got there just, just before Mary with her book. So ours was kind of the first book on the subject. Why do you think there weren't books before and why now there are two? Why, is it the right time to be publishing this book? And, and if so, why? Why is it so important? Why has developer marketing become so important? I think it's, so firstly, developer marketing as a practice is, is substantially, if not fundamentally different from consumer marketing, or even if you take B2B marketing in any vertical. Uh, one of the reasons is the audience is, is extremely technical, um, extremely demanding and critical of any marketing activity. I would say much more critical than um, uh, most, if not all, all other audiences. And um, it's often uh, recognized that if you have experience in developer marketing, then any other marketing field is 
you know, um, downhill for you. It's, it's much, much easier. Um, because exactly, it's, it's, it's exactly about um, essentially developing a practice of client relations uh, by supporting and not selling to the community. And so this subtle way of um, creating friends and advocates and evangelists within the community is much harder than um, actually getting people to, you know, getting consumers to buy something. Um, the reason why there wasn't something like that before, I guess, um, well, the field started practically when, you know, Windows was introduced uh, with Microsoft pioneering this platform economics model. Uh, and Steve Ballmer stand dancing on stage famously with developers, developers, developers. <coughs> but most people saw the opportunity as a business model one to start with. And there, there has been tens of papers in the academia on how you build platforms and innovation platforms, if not hundreds of papers. Um, but not on how do you get the, these people, that community, uh, to engage? Because you're not buying an audience. It's not just like hitting people with ads. You need people to interact, to engage, to um, uh, contribute back in, mm -hmm. in most cases. And so I think that aspect of the community engagement was largely underhyped and not paid enough attention to. And I think this has changed perhaps in the last year or two. Um, because it's not just the big platforms that are in this game, you know, the, the likes of, you know, Microsoft and Google and Facebook and uh, Amazon that we have um, authors from in the book, but it's uh, my, many more smaller companies. It's smaller, uh, sorry, it's, it's companies across verticals. You know, you have uh, car makers, you have, uh, sports companies, you have lifestyle companies, retail, and so on, all creating developer communities um, because they now see that their APIs or whatever they have out there, their SDKs, is getting traction. And they say, cool, how do we get more of that? How can we get like 10x, 100x the traction? Because I can see the new use cases being create in the wild, like I was talking with a payment service provider recently, and they said, you know, we have use cases of our APIs out there, which we hadn't thought of, and they're really cool, and can we get more of them? So how can we market to get more developers, um, um, you know, building those use cases systematically? So the practice of developer marketing is new because I think we've just hit that inflection point going from early adopters to mainstream, if you like, um, where uh, companies are realizing that this is a, system, a, a systematic process, a process which can be systematized in building uh, developer communities. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's a software developer these days, um, or a software development house, it, it seems. We had the example in, in our book about a bank. They're producing a software product. And I guess, you know, these all of these companies need the expertise. 
Um, not everybody has it. Not everybody goes and gets it in the right way. Mary, do you have any examples of when you go to a community site um, of one that appears to be failing? What, what do you look for in a good site or a bad site? And how do you kind of spot where the problems are? So I think one of the one of the biggest or easiest ways to spot a company that isn't investing in it is companies who set up a developer site and then it it's just static and never gets updated, right? And there's a lot of companies who go, oh, well, we just need developers.companyname.com and it'll be fine and it'll maintain itself and developers will see that we're on their side and we never have to do anything else with it, right? And so you'll go on a site and it's, it's very obviously a static site, hasn't been updated in a while, there's no activity, there's no investment. And so I think it's fairly easy for developers to see at a glance, like, eh, well, they, you know, they checked that box and then they walked away and they don't have someone who's, who's actively investing in the community on a regular basis. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, I think you asked Andreas about the, the timeliness of these books. And I think there's been a, a lack of resources for the last few years. Um, there's a stat that I, that I always love to go back to when people are like, well, but why, why is developer relations such a big thing now? And it's such a, it's had a, a classic, you know, hockey stick growth over the last few years, partly because startups have become such a, a big thing again. And a lot of the startups that are, that are coming up aren't consumer audience startups. They are B2B working with other companies who the developers are now responsible to implement that software and make that integration. And there's a stat from 2015 um, that basically says there's over, there's, there's a, new, a new tech startup about every second or, or around that amount. And so not all of those will succeed, of course. But out of that amount, even if we just say 10% of those have a developer-facing audience, right, suddenly the amount of companies who are needing to market to developers, who are needing to build relationships with developers, just skyrockets. And I, I had an interesting conversation with a client the other day. Um, I was trying to get to the bottom of why they were really wanting to build a community into the foundation of their company, which is a question I ask all my clients to make sure that, you know, they're not just checking a box, that they actually have the direction that they need to be going and why they want to include this. And his response was, I know that I can absolutely build a successful company without a community behind it. That's not the company I'm interested in creating. Like I want to build a company that has a solid community. I want that feedback. I want to be solving people's needs. I want to be solving these problems for people. And so I think you've got a lot of startup founders these days, especially in Silicon Valley, who the founders are developers themselves. And so the focus is shifting to, no, that type of marketing is not working. That type of sales isn't working. That type of relationship building is not working. We need to be connecting with developers one-on-one. -on -one. We need to be building these relationships or else no one's going to even think twice about using our product because they know that we aren't investing the time in them. And so why should they invest their money in us? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not going to ask you to give away all your secrets of how to build a strong community. Um, from my own experience, um, I've worked in a number of companies where we've set up communities, some more successful than, than others. Um, I recently did an interview with somebody and they were saying that 
really you don't need a huge amount of documentation you don't need a forum what you need are answers a knowledge base this is a problem you might experience this is how you solve it some on your site and a really solid stack overflow presence so that people can go on there and they can see all the different manifestations of their problem and how to solve it. Um, would you agree that less is more? What would you think would be the basic quick wins to build a strong community? So I definitely agree that less is more if your resources are limited, right? Focus on the top questions that people are asking and, and more importantly than answering those questions over and over, fix those issues within your infrastructure. So if you're seeing the same questions pop up all the time on all the support sites, then your documentation isn't great on your website. Or maybe there's an easier, clearer way to communicate that in the actual workflow as someone's setting up the integration. So paying attention to what are the common questions, not just to improve the documentation, but to improve the developer experience overall. Um, one of the fascinating things that, that I always love hearing from clients, um, that's always a very interesting conversation afterward, is when they say, well, we, we, don't, we don't have a community. We need to build one from scratch. And my answer is always, unless it's a brand new company that hasn't even gotten started, that hasn't launched a product yet, is you do have a community. They're out there. You just might not be engaging with them. So they will be on Stack Overflow. They will be on Twitter. They will be on Facebook. They will be on Reddit. They'll be on all of these different places talking about this company and talking about the issues that they're having or the experiences that they're having bad or good and whether or not the company is connecting with them is a whole other question but your community is out there so it's just a matter of how and when you're going to engage with them and engaging with them where they already are and making that your starting point and then bringing them back to your site or creating a forum if that's even necessary is is a next question to ask but figuring out where your community exists is the first step and where they're already talking so that you can go be engaged in the conversations and the platforms where they already are. I see, yes. Andreas, you've got um, a different um, overview of this because Slash Data surveys 40,000 developers a year about developer resources, among other things. So um, what, what do people typically tell us about what they value from a community? Um, I'll answer that straight away. Let me first add a comment on Mary, which directly popped into mind as she was um, going through her story. So I remember uh, that was probably 2008 or 2009, Nokia days. And Nokia had a developer program, at least uh, early stages, very early stages, it was practically only documentation. And um, the, prev the prevalent thinking was that developers would come to us because at that time Nokia had 40% market share of mobile phones globally like it was number one and it was no number two and of course they assumed that you know developers would um, respect that market share and of course it was nowhere near that and the fundamental reason that Nokia and to an extent Windows Phone lost uh, was because of lacking developer love and developer traction. So I think people still will make this mistake and think, okay, we're kind of big enough and people need to develop our APIs because we exist. Uh, and we have investors and whatever else, but it's not the case. 
So back to your question, Joe, on uh, what um, we find are the most important things. So um, a developer uh, marketing or relations effort needs to have. And I think um, it's, it's extremely clear they're very um, stable in our, our metrics. Um, we run this survey we call, uh, or the study we call um, developer program benchmarking. And one of the things we measure is the features or uh, marketing initiatives uh, a company needs to offer to support developers. And among the top ones, you have, of course, documentation and sample code, which is hygiene, completely hygiene. Um, then you have tutorials and how-to videos. You have uh, answers in public forums like Stack Overflow you mentioned and dozens of others in uh, um, kind of non-English speaking parts of the world. Um, you have development tool integrations, you have training courses, official forums, technical support, you know, and more and more with that. And what's interesting is that the uh, the types of developers that go to each vary a lot. So for um, more experienced developers, hackathons, for example, aren't resonating, they're resonating with newer developers. Uh, documentation becomes more important as you are an experienced developer, the more experience you have. Um, same goes for technical support. So um, whereas, you know, it's a set of hygiene factors, if you like, they differ a lot by the kind of developer, the region, and in some cases, whether you're talking about IoT or cloud or machine learning and so on, the kind of discipline or audience you're targeting. Yeah, of course. And I think something that came across um, when we were writing the book, we had a chapter from Qualcomm talking about hardware developers, and that really struck me um, how different a hardware developer is from a software developer. You know, it's just one word and it doesn't really seem like it makes a lot of difference. But the background that people are coming from and the kind of assumptions they make about writing code um, are very, very different. Mary, have you had that kind of um, observation? I've seen that a little bit. Um, I've more heard about it in startups where a hardware startup gets an investment from a software V or a typically software VC and just the advice that they're given and the way that they're told to approach things doesn't fit their community, doesn't fit their audience at all. And like you said, it, it doesn't seem at a glance like there should be that much of a difference, but it really is a different audience. And there's, there's people who mix into both, right? There's a Venn diagram there. But I think the, the way that it's set up, the types of events that you're at, the types of places that you're going to meet your community members can be very, very different between hardware and software. Yeah, okay, thank you. Well, we're gonna wrap up quite soon, but before we go, I thought I'd ask you both um, for your top tips of the hottest trends in this space in 2019. So where do you think, where do you think we're heading? What do you think we're gonna see? Mary, I'll let I'll you go first. first. Sure, why not? <laughs> so I'm actually really, really excited um, about this year and, and next year as well and to see what happens and where we go. I think we're, we're finally hitting a point in the industry where people, A, it's a, it's a checkbox item, right? Like people are, are starting to understand this is necessary. They might not understand why, but that's the next piece. And at least we've gotten to a point where, where companies are going, okay, yeah, we need, we need developer relations. We need someone building a community here. Our, our 
checking that box, then the next question that they're starting to ask is, well, hang on, why do we need that? And what does it do? And what's the value there? And we're starting to get more and more resources about it as well. So I run the DevRel Weekly Newsletter um, and I did a just a, a quick analysis of the data that I pulled in from my first year um, based on the tweets and the blog posts and, and things that I was collecting in the span of that year. And it was fascinating to see some of the patterns. And one of them was, you know, jobs skyrocketing throughout the year consistently. Um, another one was topics like burnout highlighted in, in April, which is right after the first kind of set of conferences for the year. And then again in December, which absolutely makes sense. But as we hit the end of last year, there was a lot of pushback, um, particularly on Twitter around, you know, the value of developer relations and what is DevRel anyway, and is it really necessary and stuff from people who, you know, other, other technical community members, honestly, who just didn't understand and weren't understanding. That went on for a little while, which was kind of discouraging and, and interesting to watch. But then the fascinating thing that came out of it was there was a whole slew of people posting about, here's my experience with developer relations. Here's what I do. Here's why it's valuable. Here's how it's helped me. Here's how it's helped other community members. Here's you know, direct feedback from community members at particular companies of how we were incredibly valuable in helping them use our product or make their jobs easier or all these different things. And so I think as more of those stories surface, as more people start to understand where that value really is and the value in those DevRel qualified leads, those connections that we're making, I think it's going to not only continue growing as an industry, but there's actually going to be some understanding of the value that we provide to companies and the advantage of building a community from the start and not just tacking it on at the end because, oh, we don't have a community and we need one to be able to succeed, right? But the yeah. value of, of creating it from the start and making that a community-centric company and the advantage that that gives you over your competition. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. It is exciting when you, when you put it like that, definitely. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share mine now and then I'll come to you, Andreas. Um, I recently spotted a quantum computing games jam in Helsinki. Um, which combines two of my favourite things. Um, but the trend that I was particularly excited by was that the guys sat on a Ferris wheel writing code. So they went round and round on the Ferris wheel and then occasionally hopped off and jumped in the sauna, all the while writing games using a quantum computer emulator. And I just think that's fantastic. So let me just put my pitch in that that should be the hottest trend of 2019. Now, Andreas, I'll come to you. Have you got anything more crazy than that? The hottest trend that the very few people can actually understand and, and, and code, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope it gets more popular. So um, I am much more of an industry observer. Uh, I think I've always had a knack for that. So I would point to three trends. Uh, I think that probably within two or three years, uh, developer marketing will be recognized as a field of B2B marketing uh, because of the sheer innovativeness of the domain. Like we have in developer marketing, and within that I include relations, we have so many innovative ways of engaging people that no other industry has tried simply because they, it wasn't that hard to engage the audience. And I think 
developer marketing has and will have much more other disciplines of marketing. And I think I was reading on the news today that uh, Salesforce is giving out its tools for uh, training employees, including Trailhead, which is how it trains developers, and it's selling those uh, as an add-on on top of Salesforce. I think it's, it's a sign of that move or, uh, let's say, lending of uh, experience and best practices from developer marketing to other fields. Uh, that's one trend. The other trend I see, again, from an industry perspective, is we now have a big five consultancies move into developer marketing. The first uh, company I've seen doing that is Accenture, and they have a formal team. Uh, last I know it was uh, over a dozen people um, working with enterprises uh, and their developer programs. And... Uh, it's visionary, of course, but I think it's just a sign that the, the big consultancies and I guess the big enterprises as well are looking at this very, very seriously, and there is demand for that. Um, the third trend I see relates to developers more and uh, how their needs are addressed by developer programs. So in our research, the most, and that's by far the most underfunded marketing activity uh, above all is answers in public forums such as Stack Overflow. So what developers tell us versus what um, the developer program managers tell us is that there's a huge discrepancy. For developers, it's very important to get peer support through public fora. For developer marketing and relations folks, it actually doesn't receive a big part of their budget. And this comes on kind of comparing uh, two surveys uh, against each other. Um, and I think that because uh, of it being such a fundamental need, I think we'll see many more, quote-unquote, stack overflows emerging, especially in uh, countries where English is not the primary language. Um, we're seeing already there's a number of companies with Q&A platform products, and they're um, you know, successfully selling those. And I think we'll see competition for where developers go to get supported by their peers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's very that is very true. And I think um, it's one of those things that will absolutely be um, growing constantly. So um, I'd like to thank you both, um, Mary and Andreas. We've had a, a great conversation here, and um, I think it's time to wrap up. But if you um, would like to leave any questions um i'm sure we can find a way to get um get them maybe twitter is the best way is it to ask questions of you mary yeah that sounds great my dms are open so feel free to to send me a message my twitter handle is mary underscore grace okay yep so any anyone listening out there has got any questions for mary um please direct them through twitter and andreas i guess the same yes mine is andreas c-o-n Okay, and I'm Joe Stitchbury, and I'm Fluffy McCoy on Twitter. So thank you both. It's been great chatting to you. Thank you for listening to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, a podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. If you want to listen to other episodes, you can subscribe at developermarketingpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at slash data HQ for regular updates. Mm-hmm.